Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm Not Using It. I'm Ollie Henderson and in today's episode I welcome Robert Glazer to the show. Bob is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners, a global marketing agency that's won numerous accolades for its company culture over the years. He leads a fully remote team of over 200 people and has now written a book called How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace. He's also the host of one of my favourite leadership podcasts, Elevate, and wrote a book by the same name. We discuss some practical advice for building positive habits, including writing weekly newsletters and books. We also cover learning, flexible work, managing your time and avoiding distractions, as well as what it takes to lead a remote team successfully. If you enjoy our conversation, please subscribe to the podcast and check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, for more on topics like this. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob Glazer. So Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I found your work through your book, actually, and then I found your podcast and then the Friday Forward. But I think most people know you from the Friday Forward. I think that's how they discovered uh, who you are. Can you maybe tell us how that started? Sure. Yeah. You got there through reverse engineering. Um, but yeah, it started um, coming out of a, a leadership event that I went to that was really focused on kind of personal development and, and particularly morning routines and kind of improving that and reading something positive and, and writing in the mornings. And after a couple of weeks, I realized I liked the notion of reading something positive, but I didn't really enjoy the sort of rainbow and unicorn stuff that we were given to, to, to read in the morning. So so like any entrepreneur, I, I actually had some quotes and some stories and some stuff I had saved in a folder. And I decided I'd try to like put something together that I would want to read. And I'd share that with my team of probably 40 to 50 at the time. And we were all distributed. Uh, we've been a remote company for, for almost 14 years. And I just started sending to everyone every week. I don't know if they were reading it, but I was enjoying writing it. You know, sometimes clarifies your thoughts. Um, and But after a couple of months, it was clear people were reading it. They were sharing it outside the company. Um, eventually, you know, make a long story short, I decided to open it up and throw some friends and family and colleagues on it. And I thought I'd get a bunch of, you know, take me the hell off this or unsubscribe. But the same thing happened. People liked it. They shared it. They forwarded it. Uh, so I renamed it Friday Forward. I opened it up and... You know, you fast forward six or seven years now, and um, there's uh, 200,000 people in, I think, 60 countries reading it every Friday. Incredible. And you recently made it into a book as well. Yeah, I actually wrote it into a book. That book was rejected uh, initially, but were, were kind of turned down, which which forced me to write Elevate, which was what's the... I, I, you know, because it was a compilation and it was like as a first book, what it's a compilation, but like, what's the story? And it's actually sent me on a year kind of work to to redefine like what, why was Friday Ford having an impact on our company and people I didn't know and me and what were the sort of principles behind that? And that, that led to the Elevate and the, and the framework. And then eventually uh, I did release that book, but it just shows kind of timings, everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, did you always have the ambition to write a book or did it come about simply because you've gained this momentum? Uh, yeah, I think everyone kind of like wants to write a book. I will <laughs> say my first book was a was a business book. I, I, I think there's something about writing a book makes it feel like it'll live beyond you. Um, it's some sort of a legacy thing. Um, my first book, you know, I said I wanted to write a book in our industry for years. I was actually at this event with a bunch of other people and it meets once a year as a class. And I just said like, all right, like, I, I, everyone says I want to write a book. Like I'm going to write a book by the time we meet next year. And, and that like simple change of saying like, I'm going to write a book 
really put all the energy into how, like, was I going to write it myself? What was I going to do? Discover. And, and that book was launched by that same date next year. Right. And, and how did you do it practically? I'm, I'm interested in this because I started writing my newsletter about a, a year ago and I, yeah. And getting getting the consistency is really difficult. You know, I think at first I was you yeah. know, getting that kind of cadence in the writings, getting something out every week. And I've just, at, at certain times it slips. I'm interested, first of all, how you've managed to be so consistent with the Friday Fall. But also, what do you actually, like from a practical point of view, what did you do to sort of put yourself became, in the frame of mind be, to write? Yeah, it became like a habit. And I think like it didn't need any reminders. Like Sunday's my idea day, Monday's my draft day, Tuesday's my edit day. Like it just became like you get up and brush your teeth and it became yeah. like an ingrained habit um which you know this notion of a keystone habit when you have a couple of these formative habits they they improve all your other habits mm. but but i did what i typically do i find five smart people i know that have done it before me i interview them i learn about mm. it and i learned like what do you what are the ways to write a book and i decided that actually for that book the self-publishing option was going to be great i found the three companies people use i interviewed them all i went through the process and then you know, I think there's this vision of like Mark Twain. I, I mean, subsequently, I've done the other books myself and differently. But I think there's a vision of Mark Twain, like off in a cabin, come out five weeks later with a book. Like yeah. from a discipline standpoint, most books get written, you know, a page a day, <laughs> five, you know, a chapter, a chapter a week. Like it, it is through constant writing, not like, you know, going off and having this magical spout. In fact, you know my latest book I'm working on for work, you know, we're trying to wrap up the draft and then I'm leaving like two months just to edit. Cause I know there'll be that many yeah. changes once we start editing. When you came to write Elevate, so you wrote a book about the industry you work in. Elevate's a pretty big idea, some big ideas in there, aren't there? You know, in, in terms of really identifying the thing, which is going to find your values, get you motivated. Yeah. That's a pretty big subject area. I mean, it, it, did that f come naturally from the Friday four? Just... No, no. So, so, so again, Friday four got rejected. I, I mean, I took that, I, I I came up with themes, I had seven, I had mountains, I had waterfalls, I had <laughs> talking to people. I mean, I, I wrote a huge part of that book in like a jalopy van in the outback in Australia, you know, when we couldn't couldn't sleep like in the middle of the night when we were on a on a family vacation. And I'd be, you know, just, you know, I mean, I wrote that book like all over the world. So it was a it was a struggle and a fight, but when I got down to the four, I and I sort of pressure tested it. Like I knew I had it, and and yeah. and then it was pretty easy to align everything through that. Let's talk about that if, if you don't mind. So, you, yeah. you, as you said, you, you talk about capacity building. That's the, yeah. the premise of the book, so, and, and you break it down into those four areas. So, so talk, talk us through what those four areas are and how you came about those four. Yeah, it was sort of pattern analysis again, which was the questions I was: What were we doing at our company that was allowing us to grow and win all these awards and really? you know, with our people, what, what, what had I done personally since that time to really, you know, I, I say, if you look at my bio, what I had done before that event and after it's like 95% is, is, is after. And then what was impacting all these people or getting people I didn't know to make changes in their life based on this little note. Um, and it came down to these four elements. So spiritual capacity and these kind of go in order and you can picture these as like quadrants and like, you know, if they're growing together, you got this momentum and this fast rolling ball and imagine a ball that has like a quarter of it missing, like it's going to kind of roll weird uh, <laughs> down the hill. Um, and, and he's going to specific order, but they're all related. So spiritual capacity is not religious, but it is like, what do you want? Uh, who are you? What do you want? For most people, that's their values. Intellectual, then as intellectual capacity is, you know, this I call your personal operating system. Like, how do you 
learn, plan, set goals, execute with discipline? Like, how do you get better at what it is that you want most? Um, physical is kind of what it sounds like your physical and mental wellness, your health, your sleep, your stress levels, and emotional. The one a lot of people struggle with this is how you relate to the outside world, things that you don't control. So basically, I was like people and circumstances, like what are your relationships, positive or negative with other people? And what about all these circumstances and things that come at you that you don't control? How do you, you know, how do you handle them? Uh, and I think really high performers are, are, are doing well in all of these things at once. And to me, it's sort of the, it's sort of the formula and the blueprint for how you get better. If you're, if you're clear on what you want, if you then work on your discipline execution, how to get that, if you maintain your physical wealth and this, and then you pick the right relationships based on that journey that you're on, get rid of the wrong relationships and decide, you know, how you're going to react with the outside world, both mental and physical resilience. Like that seems to be the DNA of all, you know, very most top achievers I've seen in whatever their field is. Yeah. And, and do you feel that that's something that has come to you gradually through life? I mean, you, you, when you break it down like that, it seems relatively straightforward. And I must say, it was not I, an I, epiphany. It was a, <laughs> yes, it was a slow a reveal. Process. It was an epiphany when yeah. it all came together because yeah. as a framework, I think, look, nothing is new. And those terms have been used more around the concepts of like energy than like, how do you actually improve and get better? But to me, it was actually a very accessible framework for, for personal improvement and understanding where you needed to do the work, right? If you're a lot, there are a lot of seemingly high achievers who I think are high on intellectual, physical, and emotional, but they've never really figured out their values or what they want. And so they are executing on a plan that is not going to make them happy or fulfilled when they get there. And that's usually external pressure, parents, community, otherwise, like just go get a good job and be a doctor and whatever. And you're like this world renowned surgeon who's just dying to write books in a cabin you know it's not actually yeah. it doesn't actually fulfill you yeah and and leadership is something you talk about a lot on your podcast is leadership something you think that is inherent among some people do you think it's sort of, that idea of a natural leader is that is that true or is it something that you can learn over time I guess it's somewhere. I'm going to split the. I'm going to split the baby on this one. Um, I, I I think that anyone can learn to be a better leader, just like anyone can learn to be, you know, better baseball player and tennis player. But I, no matter how many hours a day I practice tennis, I I, I don't have the God given ability that some of those mm. people have. So um, I I think it's both. I think there are people that are inherent leadership characteristics. But there are a lot of leaders I know that were not the leader they are now 10 years ago. I mean, they had to yeah. they had to work on it like anything else. But no matter how many hours a day I practice baseball, like I am never going to be a, you know, MVP professional baseball player. Like yeah. it's just there are some things that I'm missing <laughs> gen- yeah. genetically or otherwise. You mentioned before you've been a remote company for 14 yeah. years, I think you said. Yeah. So within that environment. I used to hide it. Now I write books about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. It's be. Uh, it's been literally. We used to try fashionable. To yeah, yeah, really. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is before Zoom. This is like we were working with blue chip companies when we were a small business, and so we mm. like didn't want them to seem like this ragtag group of people that didn't have offices. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I've I've heard stories of VCs, particularly who would have run a mile from remote exclusively yeah. remote business a few years ago and that is a prerequisite on there on, on you know on, on yeah, the characteristics the of the cost. business now yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but so within that environment i'm interested again from a sort of i suppose a leadership maybe getting towards kind of day-to-day management point of view presumably 
the characteristics of individuals who are successful in in that sort of environment are different to when you're located in the same place would you say or is it or, or do they share you know, the out of the hundred people i talk about this you fall into the one percent who makes that observation which is well it's changing yes i think look we have this uh great business that's grown fast over a decade, 30 best places to work award. I always say like mm. we spent a lot of time and energy finding the, the, and if you look at our hiring percentage, the 1.5% of people who really match to the type of culture and environment that we want, because yeah. it requires a certain type of person and it requires them to want certain type of things. If they don't want flexibility, if they don't value by flexibility and look, it used to be different. I think flexibility was for a while was like, young moms or parents right yeah and then i think yeah. you know it was people something people want in their 30s and 40s but then i think you know with the with with the millennials and gen z coming up and realizing look i you know i'm a marathon runner or i like to travel or you know i do this thing that has a certain training regimen to it that's really important to me and, and, and those are those are all like people who really flexibility is a core thing that they're looking for. Doesn't mean yeah. they don't want to work hard. Doesn't mean they're not working ten hours a day. It just means that they wanted to be at the training only training class for their sport from two to three o'clock in the afternoon, and it's not that hard to make that happen. Yeah, I I completely agree that it seems logical when you break it down like that. And actually, for most people, it's amazing, isn't it, that it took a a, a pandemic for people to realize that that sort I, of flexibility. Look, was, I'm informed. Was I had so many friends who were like, "This would never work for our business. It yeah. can't work." And you know, we we tell ourselves a lot of stories, and then we get to believe them. And I, most people at our company, I think we have an advantage that we're all remote. Everyone's on the same mm. page, same team, same systems. Yeah. I actually think a lot of companies where you're the one remote person, it's very um, isolating, but constantly yeah. they say they are more connected to people at our company. Even there was like people like this got into a teary conversation yesterday on our all company uh, town hall around like, so I haven't even met this person. And I feel like I know them and they were sending love notes to each other on the call. I mean, it's, so it, 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 yeah, there's something. Look, Friday Ford is is something that's you know connected to two hundred thousand people. I get a hundred emails each week. People sending me deep notes. Like I I haven't met these people before. Yeah. So um, yeah, our, our our culture is is run a certain way that I think everyone's on a level playing field, and it's designed to create a certain level of intimacy, but in a different way. We also look outside of global pandemics. We we get together. We do stuff. Yeah. We have a big event. Like you know, we're just we're client service. So the teams travel to the clients together rather than having an office where people come to us and our clients are all around the world. So that works yeah. better. And, and, and is the workforce around the world or is it predominantly in the US? It's around the world, but but that's actually because of our business. We have a global business. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, not to get in the weeds of this, but I strongly recommend not having a work from anywhere policy. Like we actually right. have a specific place because there are labor laws, legal things, you know, your employee yeah, goes yeah, to yeah. work in Spain and you might have to set up an entity in Spain and then they yeah, want to yeah. move to London four months later. You might be 50 grand, you know, in the hole and, and, or you might employ them as a permanent contractor in Britain and then find out that that's illegal and you had to get them a pension and it's yeah. not, you know, it, it's complicated. Yeah. I actually was having that very conversation this morning, actually, because I think the rule in Spain is three months, isn't it? And, you, and beyond that point, it becomes... Yeah. Beyond really 90 days. Yeah. You should not... Even in the US, like different states have different rules. Like just... Let's say you're a retailer. Having one full-time person in one state could make you have to collect sales tax from that state. It's called nexus. Yeah. It means you have a presence right. in that state. 
So I would, when companies are telling people they can work from anywhere, I don't think their legal and accounting people have weighed in on this yet. And, and so we have specific geographical areas that people can work out of where we have concentrations of team members. And that actually works well for events and getting together and other things yeah. that we want to do. Yeah. And presumably also salary, there, there are certain salary bands or, or some st- structure around. Yeah. And we try to salary. stay out of like New York's and San Francisco's and, 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 yeah. and you know, kind of high paying, high churn market because that's not our value prop. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, I wanted to talk about your philosophy towards learning. I, I, I listened to your podcast and I, you've just said it earlier on, actually, and it's very similar reason, the, the reason I started my podcast, which frankly is just to meet some interesting people and learn yeah. a lot. It's a great tool for that. But is that something that you've always focused on? Has learning and development of people shaped the way you do business or has your experience within business shaped that philosophy? Which way around was it? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, I, I, I didn't realize until I was 20 something years old that I loved to learn because what I was learning in the traditional school system was boring. And I was doing stuff outside of school and whatever. And everyone said, oh, you know, pay more attention. Or I would say, so the kids, that, the kid that's running the, you know, home run selling ring in like eighth grade, you know, rather than suspending them, you might want to say, you seem to have some good business and marketing tendencies. How do we reinforce these in a more productive way because fast forward and i guarantee you that kid's running something in yeah. in, in in five or ten years so i think i think our school system you know rewards a narrow set of compliant behaviors most of the people that i've talked to that are inherently creative or outside the box like you know just can found like the education system wasn't interesting so i think for me once i started realizing what i wanted to learn and how important learning was you know i'm always trying to get better at something new yeah, I had an interesting conversation uh, last year with a lady called Kath Bishop. She was an Olympic rower and she she wrote a book called The Long Win, which kind of talks about reframing our view about winning in, in life, yeah. not, not just in sport. And we talked about education, actually. And I, I kind of made a an offhand remark about the fact my kids at that time were being homeschooled. And I, I sort of said to Kath that, you know, it's quite difficult sometimes to motivate your kids and get them to do the work. You know, they're, just, they're just quite bored. They're not into it. And she, and she yeah. made the really wise observation that, let kids discover the thing that they're interested in and they will always be engaged they'll always be they'll always be interested to find out more we just we 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 put these restrictions in place don't we and define the way that every every kid should learn and don't actually necessarily allow for individualism yeah and, and look there's this balance i think you need to push kids to discover stuff and they try something and i've pushed my kids to i never push them to stay with anything but i push them to try before you pick up a tennis racket you don't know if you if you like to swing it but then we're afraid to let kids specialize, you know, we're, we're about, Hey, check the boxes and do well and all this stuff. Well, that's not life. Like the kid that loves poetry is probably not going to love science. Conversely, the kid who's brilliant in science and math is, you know, probably not going to be interested in grammar and marketing. Like I, 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 once they start to really lean into that passion and become intrinsically motivated, like we should stop trying to have them check all the other boxes and let them pursue that because, you know, the people that, change the world are the ones who get not aren't good at everything they get great in a couple things yeah um, and, and i and i think like yeah that's a huge mistake we're making this was the topic of last week's friday forward it just as my daughter gets towards college like just watching this whole sort of higher education assembly line machinery is is, is very very upsetting yeah there's uh, david epstein wrote that great book range a couple of years ago I'm not sure yeah if you read. great exactly yeah that's the 
Um, Look, my, 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 one of my sons plays, uh, uh, we'll say football for this case, soccer. Um, and, and, you know, he's 12 and he's very good at it. And he had, there's a great bunch of kids in our town. And starting at 11 years old, they were being pulled into these academy uh, programs. And these aren't kids that are going to play for the Olympic team, but, but they're playing soccer only, you know, three, yeah. three, you know, all year can't play other sports. And, you know, the repetitive injury uh, stuff that's going to come from this. I always think about range, right? Because he starts that book talking about how Tiger Woods, you know, yeah. you know, from the time he's three and, and Tiger Woods body is completely fallen apart. Right. And how Roger Federer played all different sports. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some, you know, the, I, I think the specialization on kids in sports is going to, they're all going to be crippled in their twenties and thirties. Yeah. No, that, that academy system in sports is, I mean, it's, it's, it's like that here as well. They're 11, actually, they're 11, yeah, but we're not even good at soccer, right? So this is the thing. They're 11 <laughs> years old. Maybe maybe they'll play at college. Like they're not like we're not even yeah. like there's like this is to 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 strip them from doing everything else and just be doing that at 11 years yeah. old. Like I get it if you to me they're like there should be one in the state, right? Who's like if you just play the numbers, right? If you were the best kid in the whole state, then maybe you had a chance and you should be doing that. But the thousand kids in our one state in that program, I mean, just the math will tell you that it's not going to work out into a, a long lasting career for most of them. And what are you, what are you giving up? The fact that you didn't yeah. realize you might've liked basketball or tennis or something else. Yeah. And, and the analogy to careers is, is pretty clear because we're all going to be working a lot longer. We're living longer. We're going to need to work longer, particularly after the pandemic and the amount of money the government had to borrow, you know, both here and in the States. There's some really interesting research around the number of career changes people will need to make in that time. And that's another reason that not just should we be constantly learning but actually accepting that we might be shifting into different types of jobs uh, uh, absolutely i'll talk about the remote first approach you've got so from that point of view you were pretty well set up for the past 12 months but presumably there's been some big challenges within your businesses what would you say is the, the biggest challenge being the difficulties that people have had in terms of isolation and loneliness i guess you've probably got some, some young people within your workforce that are living on their yeah. own and living in flat shares yeah, look, we had the systems and tools all set up and processes. I think to my point earlier, a lot of the people, why they had chosen our environment was they valued flexibility. They wanted to do other stuff. They mm -hmm. had young kids, you know, the people with young kids just, it was, you know, you know, who lost their daycare and lost their schooling and are, you know, have to be parent, husband, wife, teacher, all like there just was not a good answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a, the people you know who had multiple kids under five in this pandemic and 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 all the stuff canceled like so so that was difficult and and you know I, I to me is one of the hardest times of leadership because you're sitting there as a leader saying this person is is stressed and 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 and, and past the breaking point needs some break but I can't you know the real realist if I said to everyone hey just go work twenty percent we'd be out of business and they'd be out of jobs because our clients would all wouldn't be enough for what our clients needed. So this balance between like what the individuals needed, how to keep the business healthy, how to make sure that we didn't add loss of employment to all the other things that were stressing them. So uh, yeah, I, I, there has not been an easy answer. I think it's just trying to cover each other, help each other out, you know, lean into empathy, ask clients for empathy. You know, if a kid's running around on the call, like everyone's just kind of learned to accept that. And, um, but yeah, from a leadership standpoint, I've been one of the hardest challenges of my career. 
You mentioned intrinsic motivation before. That sort of makes me automatically jump to Daniel Pink's book, Drive, yeah. which uh, is, a, is one of the best business books I've that, read. That, that book is the foundation of our cultural strategy. So, yeah. yeah. I also heard him on your show. I think it was when he wrote When. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. He just, yeah. I also loved that book. And that has had a huge influence on the way that I work over the past I don't know, 12 months or so. It's quite a short book. You can kind of rattle through it pr- pretty quickly. So I recommend it to a lot of people. I'm interested, again, just to go back to the, the idea of writing. I know there are certain times of day that you are not available so to, to colleagues. Yeah. I think it's your, your sort of heads down focus time. You, do you mind talking us through how you approach your day typically and how disciplined you are with it, how much flex there is within that to allow for yeah. these kind of demands that pop up from day to day? So I use time blocking strategy, which says that there's no free time in my calendar. I, I determine in advance if I'm scheduling free time, if I'm scheduling priority one, if I'm scheduling whatever, like there's no time that you can just grab. There might be a, a range of time that is open for meetings, but it's pretty much on, you know, I was already, I came to this naturally, but when for me also just sort of codified it, like I am cognitively best after a cup of coffee in the morning and probably from eight to 11. So that's kind of no meeting zone for me. That's Mm -hmm. reading, writing, producing, whatever I owe someone speaking. Otherwise, like that's, that's high cognitive, you know, work without a lot of disruption. And then as I move in the afternoon, it's more meetings, podcasts, things that are, I just have to be there. And they, they even said like, you know, even in a brainstorming meeting, if you're kind of tired, that's not a bad thing, right? If you're kind of tired trying to edit your book, like it's a, it, 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 it's not helpful. So um, yeah, my day sort of really does line up to what he said around trying to, I don't, I don't do any, I used to do before like breakfast meetings, like I haven't had a breakfast meeting in like four years, because to me that like, that just um, disrupts the the sort of most productive time of the day. Yeah. And and how do you model that behavior to your team? Because again, I think there's, uh, I think sometimes translating positive personal sort of habits around yeah. time management, sometimes it's difficult to translate that um, to, you know, anybody, but particularly younger members of the team. How do you kind yeah. of encourage yeah. people to, to follow the same I, structure? I just try to model, not preach. Like I started this thing called yeah. No Meeting Monday and I was like, I'm not scheduling any meetings on Monday. And then someone else on my team tried it and loved it. I just kept telling them how great it was because I had a full day where I could plan a call or something that I needed to have. I just, it was no pre-scheduled uh, meeting. So I think Telling you got to show people, not tell people. So if you say you should take a day off and you don't take a day off, they're not going to do mm-hmm. it. So when they see that I'm, I, I, I can have undisturbed time in the morning and the world doesn't fall apart, then then they should believe that they can have undisturbed time. And so a lot of people on it, we call it GSD, like get shit done time. Um, a lot of people in groups will synchronize that time. That's also a huge thing. If you all agree that our heads down time is for you know nine to eleven every day, then you're all not bothering each other during that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that is one thing that I've taken into the last few businesses I've been I've been in, which is and actually start start. I usually start small, so you know Thursday morning between nine and eleven, and even that seems radical to some people. Yeah. But then kind of expand it, expand it out from there. Um, but it's a good point. I think what you 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 may not have seen it because you had that culturally built in in terms of how to work remotely. But I've certainly seen a huge amount of over the past year of people just translating what they were doing wrong in the office onto yeah. Zoom, you know, meetings all day long and then wondering why they're completely frazzled. But it's difficult because I think people sometimes struggle with the idea that things can change. And I think sometimes it takes something radical. Hopefully people have got a better grip around burnout, yeah. particularly uh, following this last year. 
Well, I, I've used that analogy with what you said in the meeting strategy, because in terms of remote meeting, I'm like, look, first thing you do when you're remote is you go through all of your meetings, like you, when you're going to move and rather than moving them to remote, be like, do we like this meeting? Is it helpful? Yeah. Rather than, you know, throw the stuff out that is in the, that you don't want and then, and then work from there. Right. You know, when people go to move, half of them just move all the crap they don't want. And the other say, you know, I've seen them get in fights. Like, look, only 30% of the stuff is leaving with us. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're using this as a chance to, 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 to clean house. So yeah, look, one of the tactics I used to use was I would write airplane time on my calendar um, when I was, you know, in this not to be disturbed window. And, and people are like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, somehow, like, treat it like I'm on an airplane. Because when I'm on an airplane, the world doesn't fall out. The sky doesn't thing. You don't ask me for that time. Like, it, it actually became... We switched it to GSD, but I would just put airplane and just as for other people to understand, like if I literally was on the airplane, you couldn't do any of these things. So yeah. figure out how to not need me for that two hours. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that, here's the argument most people take against this. And this is certainly something I think lots of people have worried about. It's a bad argument. I don't even know what it is, but it's a bad <laughs> argument. But no, well, no. I tell you what, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people who are used to being in the office and then aren't are saying, well, look, it's all right for us, you know. When you're when you're older and you're experienced and you've got a very good grip on on how to manage your time and you know understand what's what's expected of your role, it's kind of easy to to adapt to this type of life. What about if you're young, you're coming into the company for the first time? How do you sort of learn by osmosis that sort of idea that you'd sit and listen to the more experienced members of teams on the phone to clients and just learn learn through that experience? I mean, clearly being remote for fourteen years that has always been the case so how how do you onboard new team members how do you kind of skill them up in in the informal ways which people within an office environment would be used to used to seeing well you know our onboarding program is pretty robust it's two weeks everything is planned out like i always say it's better than most companies because it has to be like most companies get away with a crappy onboarding program because they just say oh follow ollie around today you know and and great companies you don't start your job until week three they have a whole scripted thing for you to do but a lot of the remote thing by the way these are just best practices in general we've always said we're very productive for remote for years because it's undistracted the work environment is so distracting these days. I think it says it takes you 18 minutes to refocus, you know, once you're distracted. So this principle of saying, one of my mentors says, I I have an open door policy, but that doesn't mean my door is always open, right? Like he's he's available to have a conversation, but he's got stuff to do. So you just can't distract him all day. They're not in the medical life-saving business. Yeah. So he'll have a time when you, if you want to have that discussion, you'll have that time. And by the way, if you wait till tomorrow to have that time, you'll probably fix half the issues by then, but are, 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 are wanting to just jump and ask a question and reach out or email, like the data and science is just overwhelming on the cost of distraction. Yeah. And this doesn't matter whether it's in office, like the, like the whole in office, you know, open billion dollars, like this has been proven statistically to have been a terrible, horrible investment that people are wearing, you know, noise canceling headphones in the offices because and slightly because they can't get any peace and quiet. I don't want to hear you talk to your wife about what you're having for dinner that night, right? I mean, it, it, it's just th- yeah. the concept of managers not being in like monolithic closed corner offices was correct. But this notion of just open bullpen, constant distraction has been like thoroughly debunked as like destroying productivity, not helping yeah. it. So you've had a lot of amazing guests on your podcast. Are there any particular interviews that? stick in your mind as having influenced your 
approach to leadership. Is there anything you hear and think, wow, that, that's just completely changed my perspective, even now? Every time I talk to Philip McKernan, it, 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 it changes my perspective because he's so directive. And I, and, and I always felt like that was an interesting episode because Philip is like a world-renowned coach. And the stuff that he was saying, almost saying in a way that he was speaking to anyone that was listening and they could apply it. And I remember something he said in that. He said, people fly from all around the world and pay thousands of dollars to come to me for the clarity that they really don't want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is that, you know, your marriage has been over for a long time, or you know that you're not in the right career or, you know, any of this stuff. So I, I don't know. I've had, I've had more like 10 minute conversations with Philip that have been sort of life changing because he just always zooms in on the core issue mm. and doesn't let you hide under it. And, and I like that style. I mean, I always say like my style on Friday forward is, um, sort of connection plus challenge. Like, again, it's not rainbows and unicorns. I, I like, I, I think I've grown a lot by people who are willing to challenge. And I had a call with Philip actually uh, in, in, in December and, and uh, <laughs> he was January. I was catching up on something that had just happened. And he's like, so what's going on? And I told him this whole thing I was rattling with. He's like, I think that's a really good story you've been telling yourself that's probably entirely not true. <laughs> um, and I, you know, he, and he meant, and, and actually for the next 24 hours, I thought about it and I like, I, we didn't catch up for a few weeks. I was like, you're a hundred percent right. Like, thank you for saying that. Like I had, I had really like talked myself into that story and it, and it just yeah. wasn't true. Yeah. And Philip McKernan, just for those people who don't know, is an amazing event. He does one last yeah, talk. Yeah. That one last talk. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just explain what that is, because I, I remember listening to that episode, and it, there's some people who are just incredibly skilled communicators, and that guy yeah. is one of them. Right? He, as you said, he gets really to the heart. Yeah, of we shit. did one last talk at our at our company too, and it was unbelievably impactful. So yeah, one last talk is is related. Philip's very much about sort of clarity, and that we have stories that you know are are true to ourselves, and that could help other people. And you you get up in one last talk, and you 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 give a speech that it's like if you were exiting world tomorrow stage left like what is the thing that you really need to share and what philip always mm. jokes and in the process is people start with oh the three tips for life happiness he's like that's not your one last talk like that like <laughs> like what is, what is the story i mean we did it at our company and it was unbelievably impactful like wow. stories that people had never shared publicly but they were very core to who they were as a person how they showed up I mean, there wasn't like a dry eye after, you know, a couple of these uh, speeches. So everyone who spends 20 minutes with Philip ends up crying. Like it, it is almost, uh, it, 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 yeah, he, he's, he has a gift, his ability to just yeah. zoom in on the truth and, and, and in a way that like you can't hide. I always tell, I first met Philip uh, at an event called MMT and I'll never forget this. Like as long as I live, there's a group of people and he's running this clarity thing. And, and, and this guy raises his hand. He's like, I just, you know, I have been struggling for five years about do I sell my business or not sell my business and all this stuff. And, and, and Philip goes, well, do you like your business? And he's like, no. He's like, no. and he's like, I've, I've hated coming to business for years. And well, why don't you sell it? And he's like, because I, I don't know, you know, what I want to do next with my life. And then I've seen Philip. He has this line. He's used it two or three times. He looked right at him. He goes, but if you did know what you wanted to do next, what would it be? And then the guy just answered and, you know, it, and this is the whole thing about the clarity, you know, they don't want you just answered. Like I would go do pottery with something or whatever. I don't know what it was. And so the guy was like, 
all right. Philip was like, okay, so how about like, you know, you want to go to do X, you, your business is doing well. It's sellable. You haven't liked it forever. How about we go home, hire a broker, put your business to sale, commit in three months, you'll have your business marker and you'll do that and go do that. And the guy's like, I'm in, let's do it. And it was like, (laughs) it was like five years of (laughs) torture that this guy went through, like just in a 60 second conversation. Um, So I'm not surprised when he pulls that. uh, uh, But if you didn't know, what would it be? I'm ready for it now. But it's a very powerful question. But the question in all these things is, do you know, but are you obfuscating it, complicating it, burying it, like making it harder? Are you scared? Like, and and so you're telling yourself these stories because you're scared. Like, you know, there's a lot of layers on top of it. Obviously, I'd recommend checking out lots of um, episodes of your podcast, but definitely I'd start with that one. But you will I'm, get the value of going to pay $5,000 and meet with Philip for two hours that you will, I think, yeah, listening yeah. to him talk to the read, to the audience, like, you know, in a, in a general way. Yeah. You mentioned you've got kids. Has that, has being a parent changed your relationship between your work and your life? Is that, was that one of the drivers to, to create a remote company or was it out of necessity? It was some business reasons, but also like, look, I work really hard, but I'm, you know, when I'm here, I'm home for dinner every night. Like there, I get to go to 90% of my kids stuff in games and, and, and have that flexibility. I think there's also something where as your kids enter sort of teens and you start to, they start to repeat back to you things that, like you start to see yourself through their eyes. And, and I think that um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I heard it again last week, but it was like, no, no, no person shall ever reach a greater level of success than their own children's opinion of them or something like that. Right. There's a quote. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's, I'm, I'm butchering it, but there's a quote like that. And so I think we talk a lot about success, but I, I to me, like if you're going to have success in this part of your life, and, and, and your family is going to be a disaster. Like, I, I don't see how that is success. Actually, another great podcast. I'll, I'll keep thinking about good podcasts I've listened to. It's a compliment, I suppose. Stu Friedman, I think, is brilliant. He's a, he's, a, yeah. he's a really interesting guy. There's actually a brilliant book, which around the beginning of lockdown, actually, last year, I, I just read it. Parents Who Lead, he and Alyssa Westering. Yeah. Right? And that's it's taking some of these leadership lessons and applying them to the way that you manage your family and your kids. I just thought it was a really clever way of doing that sometimes we talk about using our parenting skills in the workplace but actually this is slipping around most of the best parenting tools or personal development tools actually come from like corporate planning stuff that's you know you know mission values goals meetings accountability like you know all that stuff yeah last question i wanted to ask you i talk to a lot of the guests on this show about this idea that it doesn't matter how much advice you give out. Sometimes it's difficult to stick to your own advice. And actually it's, yeah. it, it came to me the other day when I was listening to the Greg McCohen episode, he wrote this book called Essentialism. Yeah. Where you essentially strip all the superfluous stuff out of your life. And he described over the past six, seven years, however long it is since he wrote that book, he's spent lots of time procrastinating and, and breaking his own rules, essentially not following his and own And then advice. his new book about making things easy was really hard to write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just interested from your point of view, like all of us, presumably there are the lessons that you've learned and you share with others, but yeah. you don't necessarily, aren't necessarily able to stick to yourself. What are those? How do you recognize them? How do you build on those types of things? Look, I think the one, it's a business adage, but I think it applies further to that, which is uh, fire, fire fast and hire slow. And right. everyone knows it, but no one can do it in the work sense. There's always a rush to hire and and there's never been someone who was fired too soon, who was not mm. the right fit. 
but but I also think that's it is a life thing too. Like we, we, to the emotional capacity, like I think we should, you know, not rush to let, you know, new relationships in, you know, to our life and go full bore. And, and then as soon as we know someone is wrong or toxic or otherwise, like we need to eject <laughs> that relationship yeah. or, or just stop giving it the energy. And I talked about this, like, this is a key thing. You don't have to have a breakup or whatever, but you can just decide like, look, Ollie, like, calls me every week, complains all the time. I'm just, I'm just not answering the phone this time. I don't have to tell Ollie, I don't want to be friends anymore, but I can certainly <laughs> stop setting up lunch with him because I feel terrible every time I go have, you know, lunch with him. So um, I think that is a, a metaphor. I, I think we need to be, you know, more careful and slower in, in, in picking the right people and relationships and, and the ones that we know are wrong. Like, I, look, I have convinced myself self so many times that ah oh, this person will turn around. and i just I, I i know they won't like but i just and i just think it's going to be less painful but it's never less painful it's only yeah. it's only more painful when you wait well thanks for that and that is good advice to finish on bob really appreciate your time today and thanks again for joining me thanks for having me so that was my conversation with bob glazer as I mentioned in the show, I will put some links to a couple of those podcast episodes in the show notes. You'll also get a link there to Bob's website where you can find out more about all of his books. Next week, I've got another cracking guest. We'll be talking company culture in an increasingly remote working world. Until then, have a great week.